We'll come straight to our first speaker, Nick Irving, who is, uh, is approaching the end of an endless PhD in modern history. And I think he's our first historian to speak at Laboratory, and we're very happy to have one. Suffering from a near-critical lack of focus, over the last decade he's worked as a researcher, lecturer, writer, and fencing coach. Nick. Thanks, I'll uh, try to live up to that intro. Um, so Charles S. Myers, who's my subject tonight, was one of the founding fathers of British psychology at the turn of the 20th century. His friends described him in his obituaries as a quiet man whose brilliance was known only to his closest colleagues. Having read a bunch of his articles, uh, I can say that they give off an impression a little bit different. It's, he's a guy who uh, seemed to care a lot more about data than he did about people. So I've come to think of him as kind of, uh, imagine Dr. House with manners. So, like if Hugh Laurie was British. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so Myers was a true intellectual scion of the Enlightenment. He showed talent in anthropology, in literature, in philosophy, in music. And uh, he was just wildly accomplished, like a whole bunch of white blokes at the turn of the century. He had two degrees from Cambridge, one in natural sciences, one in medicine. Uh, in 1898, he went on an anthropological field trip to Sarawak and the Torres Strait and came back and published an article on the music of indigenous people. By the time of the publication of his most influential book, the incredibly fascinating textbook to experimental psychology in 1911, he was a lecturer at Cambridge, he was a professor at King's College London, and he was the founding director of Cambridge's experimental psychology laboratory. And in the early years of the 20th century, psychology was a fledgling field. It was sort of wrestling with the kind of long shadow of the Enlightenment on one hand and the kind of murky depths of the Freudian subconscious on the other. And Myers was definitely a product of his time. He was very interested in the nerves as a mechanical system rather than a kind of a, a sort of extension of the, of the body carrying electrical signals, treated them very much like muscles. He took a middle road between the kind of Freudian case study model and the, the kind of growing interest in statistics and psychology at the time. And he cared very much about the accuracy of his data. I think Freud probably would have classed him as anally retentive. <laughs> And he also felt, like many of his contemporaries, that the ends justified the means. In 1904, he published a quite dispassionate defense of the practice of live vivisection, where he argued that any pain caused to humans or animals during procedures like this was greatly offset by the data that it gained for science. He also had some problematic attitudes to race. He uh, very much liked the idea of anthropometrics, which I think still exists, kind of the idea of measuring bits of people. But in the, 19th, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, was mainly used to figure out whether racism existed or not. <laughs> this was, after all, a period in history where learned men of science quite seriously published articles on the African macrophallus and the Asian microphallus, which I think probably tells us less about their subjects and more about those men. <laughs> in other words, Myers was a product of the 19th century, a time when men were real men, when facts were real facts, and it was a good day if you managed to get to breakfast without causing genocide. Now cross that off my bucket list, make a room full of people laugh at the word genocide. Twice. <laughs> the ordered and rational world that Myers cherished, however, was lurching towards his darkest hour. It didn't start out as the war to end all wars. That name came later. 
But the young men of Britain marched off to the front, hoping desperately to prove that they had nerves of steel. It was meant to take the boys of Britain and turn them into the next generation of great men, of great leaders. But unfortunately, it threatened to destroy modernity itself instead. And Myers put himself right in the thick of it. Just before Christmas 1914, which was the first Christmas that the war was meant to end before, um, he uh, marched off and joined the Royal Medical Corps. And he was posted to the Duchess of Westminster's uh, war hospital in France, just behind the front. And like so many men behind the front, he started to observe a condition amongst the wounded that nobody quite had words to describe yet. He was the first to use the word shell shock to describe this condition in an article, an academic article, though later in his life he disavowed the term and claimed to hate it. Between 1915 and 1919, he published four articles in The Lancet, uh, sort of detailing 20 separate cases of shell shock in British soldiers. Because he was so interested in the nerves and the senses, Myers tended to focus on those aspects of these cases. So he, uh, he started out in his first couple of cases by looking at things like uh, dimmed vision, uh, incapacity to hear, incapacity to smell. But he also noticed other things in these, in these men who'd been neurologically affected by, uh, well, they thought nervously affected by combat on the Western Front. He started to notice other things like total or partial amnesia. Later on, in his second article, he turned to look more at uh, an idea of hyperesthesia, men who were feeling far more in their skin than they, that they normally would be, again, having been affected by combat. And he would torture them with pinpricks and cotton wool to try and get them to tell him what sensations they were feeling so he could put it in his case notes and in his journal. Meticulous note-taker. In line with pre-war theories about the nerves, Myers argued that this new condition was a physical malady. It was the, the concussive blast of artillery shells landing close to these men would kind of damage the fine tissues of the nerves. And he wasn't alone in this theory. In 1916, the Royal Society had a conference on shell shock, and uh, one doctor got up and gave a, a, a speech about uh, having cut open the head of one of these men and found tiny hemorrhages sprinkled throughout his grey matter. And he said, this obviously is the cause of shell shock. Then another bloke got up and said, well, actually, I don't think that's what this is. I think there's a whole pile of, of predisp uh, predispositions. There are a lot of antecedent conditions that you might have that, would, that could be reawakened by the concussive force of these shells. And yet a third one got up and said, my dear sir, that's poppycock, don't be ridiculous. And this kind of argument went on. And far from being just something unfolding in the learned halls of the academy, this argument mattered. It made great differences in the lives of men. In fact, some men died because of this argument. The Army's Medical Corps had noticed very early on that there was a difference between men who walked in with physical symptoms, you know, trauma to the body from having been too close to a bomb or a, or a shell, um, they had all sorts of crazy names for these things. This is kind of very serious uh, articles talking about whiz-bangs as, as something that might affect these men. Sounds like a 4th of July. But um, these men would arrive, some of them with physical symptoms, some of them with, with only nervous symptoms, and they had no real way to, to divide these up. So using the terminology of the day, they'd talk about this idea of nerves. These men with only nervous symptoms, they classified them as malingerers men who had faked their illness in order to be taken away from the front. And what happened to these malingerers depended on which army you were in. If you are in the German army, there was a pretty good chance you'd be electrocuted, and the whole point was to try and make the hospital less comfortable than the trenches. In the British army, there was a pretty good chance you'd just be shot. This is a very real argument with very real effects for hundreds of thousands of men. <coughs> now, the thing is, once... 
once the war, the kind of casualties started to build up and the armies had to reappraise what they thought was the cause of these illnesses, things moved to a sort of slightly more humane position. The British Army would start to classify men with physical trauma as shell shock W for wounded and men with only nervous trauma as shell shock S for sick. Now, if you were sick and not wounded, you didn't get a pension. So again, there were these kind of very specific uh, consequences to how uh, these men, these learned men in the pages of nature, uh, not nature, uh, the Lancet, decided they were gonna explain how this condition came about. Now Myers eventually published an article in 1919 that solidified this. He called it emotional shell shock if it was just a nervous condition and commotional shell shock if it was obviously caused by some sort of physical malady. And he wasn't the only one to say that. Uh, Freud's 1919 volume on war neuroses made the same connection. But he was pushing against stiff resistance. The War Office's own 1922 report on shell shock listed a whole set of categories that, of illness that you could have that could eventually produce shell shock without the physical trauma, this idea of emotional shell shock. The list was remarkable. It had things on it like uh, alcohol abuse or opium abuse or syphilis or sexual excess. Didn't specify further than that. Or my favourite one, feeble-mindedness. So, as you can see, the army was more concerned with the morals of its soldiers than it was with their mental health. Now, I don't mean to convince you that Myers was a compassionate man. I know it sounds like I'm saying that. I mean, this was a guy who came up with the idea of hypnosis and suggestion as opposed to execution and electrocution as a way to treat mental health issues. So he sounds like I might think he was compassionate. He really wasn't. It's not why I chose him as my, as my science hero for tonight. This is a guy who, in one of his case studies, named and shamed a malingerer who he'd sent back to England. So actually, he was a bit of a bastard. <coughs> I picked him to talk about tonight because he built a brand new way of understanding the mind, almost from scratch, and in the face of one of the most catastrophic human disasters in our history. His meticulous esteem for the truth meant that he was not happy to assume that the vast bulk of young men he saw coming through these hospitals were cowards. So even without a language to explain what he was seeing, he rose to the challenges that this overwhelming data presented him. But I also chose him because I'm a historian and not a scientist. Most people these days think that shell shock is an antecedent condition to something we all have heard of, which is PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The idea is that Myers and his contemporaries had a really primitive understanding of the human mind, a really primitive understanding of how uh, mental trauma worked. I mean, how could they have a more advanced understanding? They thought it was nerves and not the brain. They thought it was the body and not psychology. Um, that he was groping around in the dark with a very, very dim flashlight. We know better now because we know more. That's the argument that usually accompanies this idea. Myers is my scientific hero for tonight because he shows us the fallacy of thinking we, of always thinking we know better than people from the past. Across his four articles in The Lancet, in conversation with his peers, Myers changed his mind several times about what the disease was and what its symptoms were. And this is where it gets really interesting. If you compare the list of symptoms from his articles and from other articles of his contemporaries with the list of symptoms or the diagnostic criteria for PTSD in the DSM 3, 4 or 5, there is significant overlap, but there is also a huge number of symptoms that don't line up. Not a huge number, but a significant number. Some symptoms of shell shock have not been seen in men suffering combat trauma since the Great War in over 100 years. In fact, it's appropriate to be talking about this tonight given it's the centenary of the Battle of the Somme. 
Myers and others reported, for example, fits of uncontrollable shaking, not, not just tremors, like if you've seen the beginning of Saving Private Ryan with Tom Hanks's hand, but shaking so violent and so uncontrollable and so bad that men could not walk, let alone stand, while they were experiencing this. So the two conditions share some symptoms, like hallucinations, flashbacks, those sorts of things, um, uh, shock. Uh, at, at kind of loud, sudden loud noises. Those sorts of things belong to both uh, conditions. And there is some amnesia associated with PTSD, but Myers and his contemporaries recorded large numbers of men who had total amnesia, could not remember anything about their previous life and who never recovered. They languished in hospitals after the war. Men were struck blind and deaf in both world wars in the 20th century from only mental conditions, from only psychiatric uh, abuse, essentially, of the front. But that condition, that, which was called hysterical blindness or hysterical deafness later on, that condition it didn't disappear in Vietnam, but it was certainly considerably less, seen, seen considerably less often. PTSD and shell shock are different conditions, and this is one of the things that Myers really points out for us, I think. So in history, there's a thing called anachronistic diagnosis. Historians use it to make fun of scientists who write history. It's our way of saying, get off our lawn. I acknowledge the irony of me standing here and saying that to you guys. We're mostly jealous, I think, of the attention scientists get. Um, you guys get to talk about like the most awesome stuff. You get to talk about probes being captured by the orbit of Jupiter or CRISPR being able to rewrite the human genome. I know I probably got that wrong. I'm a historian. Don't, don't kill me. Um, all we get, all we get is constant complaints about how we don't write enough histories of straight white men doing things in governments or how amazingly awesome war is, right? Like, we have to deal with Peter Fitzsimons. Anyway, I want you to just imagine for a second that every time you go to the public with any piece of scientific knowledge, they react like you've just suggested that climate change exists. That is what it's like being a historian. But anachronistic diagnosis is important because it reminds us that scientific knowledge is not just a process of discovery. It's not just about going to the, the world that exists and uncovering more data about that world. <coughs> 19th century scientists, in the, you know, fresh from the Enlightenment, or okay, it was getting a bit stale by then, but it was still kicking around. Um, 19th century scientists argued that we existed on an island of light in an ocean of darkness and that all you had to do was shine that light into the darkness and you would discover more about the world. You'd build on this corpus of knowledge. The two world wars, nuclear weapons and the Holocaust have shown us that there are nasty beasts lurking in that darkness and they do not care for our survival. The history of mental illness is more than just illuminating the dark recesses of our collective minds. We know ideas change over time, otherwise we'd still agree with Myers. We'd think that it was fine to just talk about race in terms of whether or not certain bits of us were bigger or smaller than other people's. Um, we obviously have different attitudes to things like surgery with an anaesthetic than Myers had. We know bodies change over time as well, even in non-evolutionary uh, non timescales. Otherwise, I wouldn't bang my head when I walk through doors in Pompeii or in the kind of smaller towns in England, right? Um, and we also know that diseases change over time. Otherwise, uh, antibiotic resistance would not be the threat that it is. I realise I'm mixing my metaphors here, just bear with me. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that diseases, like ideas and like people, are, his are not historical constants. They change over time. We will never know, for example, if Abraham Lincoln had Marfan syndrome, because Marfan syndrome didn't exist in 1865. 
every year, Chopin, the composer, gets a new diagnosis for the, for the various uh, conditions that he was apparently, apparently had, and that's just because every year someone discovers a new disease that it could potentially be. Interestingly, ancient historians do argue over whether Socrates had epilepsy or whether he really believed in God. Right? And it actually depends if you believe in God, whether you think Socrates also believed in God or not, apparently. If we call Maya's methods primitive, we are no better than those who will in 100 years call our methods primitive. And the thing is, they're going to be wrong too someday. The history of medicine is kind of like an episode of House. Can you tell I've been binge-watching that show? It's just it's one that takes centuries. There are no right or wrong diagnoses in the history of medicine. There are just ones that work at particular historical moments and ones that don't. To quote one expert in this field, you don't die of a disease, you die of whatever thing your doctor told you you were dying of. Now, shell shock and PTSD are different conditions, if you're happy to go with me on that one. It does let us ask a really exciting question. What if diagnosis is not evidence about human bodies unchanging through time? What if instead diagnosis is some sort of evidence about us at this moment in history or us previously in history? For example, and I'm not going to get too far into this, for example, what does, what does Maya's ideas about shell shock and our ideas about PTSD tell us about the difference between the world in 1915 and 1965? These are huge and exciting questions for historians. Another, put it another way, to come up with a more contemporary set of ideas about disease. What does it say about us now that two uh, aspects of mental health that are fairly uh, constantly talked about in the, the media, and you guys probably know plenty of people who suffer from one or both of these conditions, anorexia and depression. What does it mean that 300 years ago those diagnoses either didn't exist or meant something very, very different? Myers is my scientific hero tonight because he wasn't constrained by the assumption that he was right. What happens if, like Myers, we abandon what we think we know? Like Myers, I think we would see the worst excesses of our day more clearly, like shooting men for apparent cowardice. And our best results for what they are, a guess that will soon be wrong. Myers is my hero tonight because he's a reminder that human knowledge is not just a journey out of the dark and into the light. He shows us that we'll never reach a perfect understanding of the world around us, but that that is not a reason to stop trying. Thank you very much.